0: Hi, I'm Dave Scott. I'm pastor of Crossway Community Church, and I want to welcome you. Crossway is a church simply committed to making disciples. We meet at 1501 Woodbury Road. It's off of Colonial and Fort Wait in East Orlando. Come check us out. I look forward to meeting you. Um, Nathaniel and Katie got married on uh, June 4th. Is it the fourth or the sixth? Anyway, and uh, Katie had 10 bridesmaids, uh, and uh, she, uh, she's a huge people person. That's one of the things we love about her. Had a lot of friends, uh, and that was we had a great time of celebration. Um, just this weekend, on and I were talking more about, you know, our, our oldest son, Jonathan, got engaged, and he's getting married October 8th, and we were planning another rehearsal dinner, uh, and uh, this was Nathaniel and Katie's rehearsal dinner. And we did something really special for them. We're from North Carolina. I grew up in North Carolina. And uh, uh, one of my boys' favorite soft drinks is cheer wine. And cheer wine is a cherry cola that's made, it's originated in Salisbury, North Carolina, which is very close to where a very small town that I near where I grew up in. And my boys love cheer wine. Matter of fact, Jonathan wrote an essay on cheer wine, it's titled The Nectar of the Gods. To, to apply for college and he got a full scholarship to college. So I'm very appreciative to cheer wine. It saved me a lot of money. <laughs> and so for Katie and Nathaniel's um, uh, rehearsal dinner, you know, he said, what are you gonna what do what are what are we gonna drink? This is Jesus had the same problem. And so what we did was we got bottles of cheer wine and we put little bow ties on them and little veils uh, for everybody at the reception. Now you can get these at Cracker Barrel uh, you can also get them at uh, Four Rivers, uh, as in Bojangles. There's a Bojangles in Salt and uh, Sanford. There's only one, the closest one that I know of. Um, and uh, but anyway, it's, a, it's a, a family tradition of ours, and so uh, my boys are gonna be very excited that I was able to na- title a sermon "Cheer Wine." <laughs> uh, but Christ came as the new creator of new wine. Um, want us to look at this? What what is a wedding? Um, well, uh, you know, John records here on the third day there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee. Uh, well, a wedding is, is a celebration of something new, right? And you either love weddings um, or not so much. You know, it's this wedding schmetting. Uh, you know, okay, well, Jesus started with, a, with he, he had a miracle. And let's get on to the good stuff, right? Let's get on to the cross, to Calvary, the resurrection, where the real stuff happens. Well, um, John's included it here, and he's included it here for a reason you know weddings uh and this when i ever preach a wedding one thing is i point out from ephesians 5 paul talks about how christ uh, is preparing his bride for her wedding and that he's washing her with the water of the word so she'll be without blot her stain or blemish of course that means that she has stains on her and she has blemishes the bride is both glorious but also at times can be grotesque because it's fallen and broken and so weddings can They do remind us of the ideals, right, Uh, and great romantic uh, relationship, wedding, marriage, what could be greater, but also they remind us of the ways we fall short and the ways that our lives don't measure up to those ideals. Um, and, uh, And so people have different reactions to weddings, but why does John start here talking about a wedding? Well, um, you know John also wrote the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, right? And he wrote the first his three epistles first second, third John. and at the beginning of Jesus ministry, he began, John recounts his gospel starting with a wedding miracle. Now, was this just a coincidence? was this just uh, an accident? Um, uh, but I think not um, because Jesus John, according to his telling, he literally Jesus pops the cork uh, about his Uh, kingdom, the coming of his kingdom, at a wedding as his first miracle. And at the end in Revelation, Jesus the groom consummates what he started with what's called the marriage feast of the lamb. Uh, So, for example, in um, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, it says, "...let us rejoice and exult and give glory to him, for the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready." And then in two chapters later in 21, uh, we see this picture of a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. For I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Write these down, for the words are trustworthy and true." So notice that John, the apostle, bookends his account of Jesus' announcement of his kingdom and his, 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 his consummation of his kingdom with weddings. Not also note here in Revelation, the language of new creation, a new heavens, a new earth, behold, I will make all things new. This is very significant for understanding John chapter 2, because a wedding is a celebration of something new. It's a celebration, in fact, of a new creation. He says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And this is the eschatological new creation that was prophesied, the new creation. And so, um, uh, so this is new creation, it's a metaphor. And you know, wine is actually uh, used in Scripture as a prophetic metaphor for new creation. Uh, It's a biblical sign of new creation. Wine flowing signals something new. And so um, here in John chapters 1 and 2, what I want you to see is that John inaugurated, or he explains how Jesus inaugurated or launched his kingdom as a new creation that he will consummate as a new creation with the wedding, at the marriage supper of the land. Um, So uh, back up a little bit. Look at John chapters 1 and 2. New creation, once again, to understand the wedding in Canaan, you need to understand new creation as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, a prophecy uh, that Jesus was fulfilling. John chapters 1 and 2, the Apostle John structures these two chapters around creation. He starts out with Jesus as the creator. Literally, he quotes 1 Genesis 1-1. In the beginning was the word, the word was God. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Jesus is the creator. That's John's starting point. Here in John 2, he shows Jesus as the creator of new wine. The one who brings in, in fact, the new creation. Um, so this is uh, what we're talking about here is using the lens uh, of biblical theology of new creation to understand this passage. Biblical theology is understanding the great themes of Scripture. For example, grace would be a theme of, of uh, biblical theology, something that you can use to understand all of Scripture to tell how the story, God's story, goes through all of Scripture. A seminary professor that um, I sat under is Greg Beale, and he wrote... Uh, uh, about this in this particular in the eschatological new creation in the new testament and um so where does it come from it, look at isaiah 65 and isaiah 65 it prophesies, behold i create a new heavens and a new earth the former things shall be remembered and and shall not be remembered or come into mind god said he was going to create a new heavens and a new earth um and uh and we know that Christ himself was the first fruits of that in his resurrection Paul says that here in first Corinthians chapter 15 in this famous chapter on the resurrection he says that uh, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and literally that that word that phrase first fruits is a technical phrase that's very significant that's a that's a uh, a new creation uh uh, metaphor. He's the first fruits of the new creation. Uh, literally, as his glorified body was the first of of. In one day, we will have glorified bodies as well. He's the in breaking right uh, of of the new creation. And so, um, in in, he, but the but the new creation wasn't just about new bodies. It's also about a new covenant. In Hebrews chapter eighteen, the writer of Hebrews says. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the old one obsolete, for what was becoming obsolete and growing old is is ready to vanish away. Jesus brings a new covenant. John is very explicit about this in John chapter 1, that Jesus brought a new covenant. Moses brought the law. Jesus brought grace. Um, And so um, uh, here we see it. What's the message of John, right? Jesus is God. Believe in him and through him live. From from John chapter 20, verse 31. Jesus is the beginning of God's story. John says that in John chapter 1. He's also the end of God's story. We're going to see that in just a minute. But he's also the shift in God's story. What is the shift? The shift is the shift of grace. This new covenant of grace that's now breaking in with the announcement or the beginning of God's new creation. Um, So... You know, first notice from going back to chapter 1, John, struck. He, he, he puts Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We, in, the, in the first parts, he's the beginning. He's God. He's the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? Verse 1. And then he goes through names, all the different names of God through chapter 1. He's the Word. He's, he's creation. He's life. He's the light of men. The true light. The only Son. Jesus Christ. The only God. Christ. The Lord. The Lamb of God. The Trinity. Son of God. Uh, he's, he's rabbi, he's a messiah, he's a human being from Nazareth, who's the son of Joseph named Jesus. And then what is the last thing he says in the last verse of chapter 1? He says, you will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so John, I just might want to point this out, this is, he ends chapter 1 with this very significant title of the Son of Man. John bookends Jesus as the beginning and as the end. You say, "What? How, how is that?" Because the Son of Man is a a title that comes from Daniel chapter seven about the coming Messiah, the end times Messiah. In the latter days, the heavenly the the, the, the ancient of days will appoint a new heavenly figure, right? Uh, and he will be granted authority and glory and sovereign power and his kingdom will be everlasting and indestructible. This is the Son of Man figure of Daniel chapter 7. And so when John refers to Jesus as the Son of Man, he's pointed, he's, 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 he's uh, uh, platforming Jesus as the end-time Son of Man who inaugurates an everlasting, prevailing, new creation kingdom. How does this apply to Jesus? Well... Four times in the Gospels, Jesus is accused, when he uses the, the, the title for himself of Son of Man, he's accused of blasphemy. The Jews didn't use this phrase for anybody. I mean, it sounds like he's just saying he's a man, he's a human being, he's, he's, you know, he's human. But that's not what that phrase means. And nowhere in the Gospels will we ever see Son of Man just mean human. It means specifically, it's referring back to the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, Jesus was crucified for claiming to be the Son of Man. That's how significant this phrase is. So when John starts out saying that Jesus was in the beginning, he was the Word, he was with God, he was God, he is the Alpha, and he's saying he is the Son of Man, the one who's going to sum up all times, the one who's going to have an everlasting kingdom that's indestructible and prevailing, he's saying he's the Omega. John 1 says he's the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? So, but... Um, uh, so he's casting Jesus here as the son of man who's bringing a new divine era, a new divine epic, an epic of grace. See, John's writing to a Jewish audience, and uh, the Jews were living in the age of, of the law, the age of Moses, um, and uh, the, age of the, uh, the age of the law was inadequate, uh, and now a new age of grace is, is needed. A new age of grace is, is Christ is bringing, right? And Jesus is the new age. Jesus is the one who brings grace. Um, and that's what John says in the middle of his chapter, in chapter one. He, he, grace came with the Son, who grace upon grace, glorious grace, God's grace, right? And so he's very clear that This man, Jesus, the one who's made flesh, the one who's dwelt among us, we see his glory. This man is bringing a new covenant of grace, this son of man. Um, So this is all important to uh, understand as a context for the wedding of Canaan and how John is going to explain uh, this story so that you understand this isn't just some Hugh, Hugh Grant Roncom about some wedding crasher, right? <laughs> Jesus is showing up at somebody else's wedding and, and, and okay, he, he makes some really great wine. That's not, it's a lot more significant than that. Um, because Jesus making the water into wine demonstrates his latter day fulfillment as the son of man who completes purification who erases shame, and who ushers in a, great, great, a new creation. Let me say that one more time. Jesus, making water into wine, demonstrates his latter-day fulfillment as the Son of Man, who completes purification, erases shame, and ushers in a new creation. Um, uh, so um, let's, let's go on into the, 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 uh, the, the story here. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus w- w- was there. Now, why is John counting? It says on the third day. Why is he counting? If you look in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the gospel, John is giving very specific uh, facts and details to this story. He's not just telling some myth that's up in the high in the sky. He's saying, yeah, this is Peter, and Peter's from Bithlo. And Jesus, and Jesus is from Geneva. And like, why in the world would you mention Bithlow and Geneva? John is mentioning these facts, which are otherwise obscure, don't really make any difference because they have significance, because they tie this to history. And when he says that the, there's uh, the third day, he put it there for a reason. He's not just wasting words to fill out, a, a, to fill out a, a college paper where you have to have 500 words, you know, to turn it in. That's not the case. These are there for a reason, these details. Um, now, uh, so why is he counting days? Well, the, he says it's on the third day, but you need to go back and you need to count the number of days in chapter one. And literally, the third day is actually the seventh day. And I want, how how do we know that? Well, the first day, and John, he gives these days clearly in chapter one. The first day is the day that the delegation is sent by the Pharisees to John, okay? The second day is the day that John announces Jesus as the Lamb of God. John's very clear. The next day is the day the disciples go home with Jesus. Then the next day, Andrew announces Peter to Jesus. Then the next day, Philip introduces Nathaniel to Jesus. And then, John says, from that day, the day that Nathaniel met Jesus, the third day, three days later, there was a wedding at Canaan. Now, Jews counted days with what's called um, inclusive reckoning. And you may remember this from the resurrection story where it said that he would rise on the third day, but he he was crucified on Friday, but he rose on Sunday. You say, well, that's not three days. Well, that means what inclusive reckoning means is that every every portion of a day is counted as a day. So Friday afternoon is counted as a day. Saturday is counted as a day. Sunday morning is counted as a day. So that's why Jesus rose on the third day. The same thing here. The day that Nathaniel met Jesus is a day. The next day is the second day. The third day is the day of Canaan. But that makes the day of Canaan the seventh day. John chapter one and two are structured around creation and new creation. The seventh day is the day of completion. It's the day of rest. And Jesus comes as the new creation to complete God's covenant, to give a new basis of grace. And so uh, when he's doing that, John is not just, he's not just positioned Jesus as the creator. He's now in chapter two, positioned Jesus as the new creator. The one who brings and announces and breaks in with new creation. Um, So it says, uh, on the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, uh, you know, it doesn't say whose uh, wedding this was. Obviously, they were family or friends of Jesus and Mary because they were invited Uh, We don't know whether it's on the bride's bride's side or the groom's side, Um, but we know that uh, Canaan is about anywhere depending on which place it's it's identified with archaeologically. It's between four and nine miles from Canaan. So um, Jesus, uh, he comes and his disciples are invited as well. One of the interesting things this tells us is, in fact, that if Jesus is invited to the same wedding that his disciples are invited to, that they, they grew up in the same area, they grew up in the same relational network. They knew each other. When you grew up in Davie County, everybody in Davie County knows each other. If you go to Davie County today and you ask about the Scott family, <laughs> chances are they'll know where they are and they can tell you where we live. Even if they live on the other side of the county, well it's a small place, it's a country, people knew each other. So that's an interesting observation here. But everyone was invited and it says, In verse 3, it says that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they don't have any wine. Now, uh, Joseph is only mentioned in chapter 1 as Jesus' father. He's never mentioned again in the Gospels, which gives us reason to think, and he's not even mentioned here, is that he's probably already passed away and she's probably already a widow by the time Jesus is an adult. And so, as a widow, it would be very uh, normal for a widow to lean on her first son in, in different situations. And so, Jesus says, they don't have any wine. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, some people think that Jesus, Mary is, is expecting Jesus to do a miracle here, but Jesus hasn't done any miracles. So Mary hasn't been able to see Jesus through that lens yet because the rest of the Gospels haven't happened yet that you and I are aware of. The truth is she's pointing to a human problem. This is a shame culture. Running out of wine would be a shame uh, on the groom. Uh, Running out of cheer wine is a great shame. (laughs) So we made sure we didn't run out. Um, Mary says there's, there's no wine. Now, once again... We always need to look at the Old Test- the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament. And in fact, what Mary is saying here echoes a passage in the Old Testament from Isaiah in chapters uh, uh, 24 and 25. And in Isaiah, here's what it says about the state of Israel prophetically. The wine mourns, and the, the vine languishes, and all the merrymaking sigh. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it but then, it's, and then it turns and it says what God's prophetically going to do. On the mountain of the Lord, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine and of rich full uh, a food full of marrow and of aged uh, wine that is well refined. Israel was without wine. They were empty, right? God promises a new day of flourishing, a new day of blessing. And so this is a statement about Israel's religious bankruptcy. And so um, it's interesting that, Jesus, that Mary says there's no wine. Jesus responds to her and says, woman, what, is, what, did, what does that have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, the, the, the phrase here when he says woman, uh, in English, that's, that's a pretty strong response. Uh, It could even be taken as chauvinistically. It could be taken as being dismissive or not respectful. Uh, The truth is is that in Jesus in Greek, uh, it's not that strong. There is still a mild rebuke here, to be sure, uh, and and when he says, what does it have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. Um, But, you know, the phrase woman is closer to, in in the south, we say ma'am, right? Uh, You know, and I still say ma'am to my mom. Um, But... uh, so it' it's not it's not disrespectful in that way, but Jesus does create distance between himself and his his mom when he says, "Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet." Um, and uh, you know, uh, here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus even declares his freedom from a human agenda. And Jesus had already been baptized in chapter one. He started his, his, he's an adult who started his ministry. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And Mary, like all of us, his mother, must approach Jesus through his role as a Messiah by faith. Um, She can't impose on him as as a mother. And, And Jesus is very clear about this boundary later on in the Gospels that uh, that uh, his main relationships is not about biological relationships; it's about relationships that are based through faith. Um, and this this isn't meant as a disrespect because he uses the same phrase at the, at the crucifixion to say, "Woman, behold your son." So it's it's not it's not in that way, but uh, but he is uh, drawing a line here. He says, "My time hasn't come yet." Now it's interesting that he says, "My time, my hour." What does he mean by my hour? Well, that points to his passion. His hour is the hour of his death, right? And uh, John here um, dedicates, the whole second half of the Gospel of John is about the, the days that led up to Jesus' death. And he says, my hour hasn't come. This is a foreshadowing, a reference to an event that's gonna be developed later, it's gonna be explained later in the Gospel. Uh, all of the Gospel of John moves towards the cross. But you can't think of these 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 miracles and signs that lead up to the cross as if, okay, this is irrelevant, let's just let's just. Fast forward to the end and see how this thing ends up. Now Donna likes to fast forward movies to the end to see what happens, uh, and but we kind of we got to avoid that that temptation here at the Gospels because the truth is is that each of these miracles, each of these interactions, each of these parables all build. They lay the foundation for. In fact, they all foreshadow the glory that we're going to come to see fully manifest at the cross. So. They're not irrelevant. Um, and his mother says to his servants, Do whatever uh, he tells you. Um, so Mary here shifts uh, from being relating to him as a mother to a, a response of faith. She's placing her faith in Christ. Verse six Now there were six stones of water there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars. And they filled them to the brim. So first note it says that there's stone jars. These weren't uh, uh, pottery jars. These were stone jars, and that's a significant detail. Uh, these it probably means that this was uh, a priestly house. This is this is a these are luxurious jars. Normal jars, more affordable jars, would have been made out of clay. Uh, stone jars actually had to be hand hewn. It's a lot more meticulous process. It's, they're more precious. They're more expensive, and and these would have been. Uh, Owned more likely by a priest. The reason why is because stone is impervious, so it can't be uh, it can't be um, in any way contaminated. And for purification jars to have jars that are, can't be contaminated would be more preferable. So this this story is associated with with Jewish priestly purification. These jars would be, purify the utensils and, and and before they had a meal um, to make sure that they were. They were clean, but they were empty. The jars of Jewish purification were empty. Jewish ritual religion fell short. And so here it says that they filled them to the rim. Jesus completes and fulfills the Old Testament requirements of purification to the rim. What they could never do. Um, In verse 8, it goes on and says... And he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. Jesus says, draw some water out. Notice that it says draws water out. It doesn't say he dips water out. In English, there's a difference in usage between drawing water, which would be from a well, and dipping water, which would be from an open vessel, right? The same is true in Greek. Greek has a specific word for drawing from a well. And it's different from the word from just uh, dipping water, like with a ladle. This word means drawing from a well. What does that mean? Jesus told them to fill the purification uh, jars with water. Then he says, now, gar. That's a state of contrast in the Greek. He's, you filled the jars with, with, with water. Now, Draw water, Jesus says, from the well. And so it's interesting that it's, the, the the grammar seems to indicate that the water comes not from the from the vats of purification, the, water, the jars of purification. It comes from this new bucket that's drawn from a new well, and that's the water that's brought to the to the uh, steward of the feast, and that's what is turned into wine. So, um, uh, the water that is made into new wine doesn't come from purification jars. It comes from a new source, right? Why? Well, if, if it had come from the jars, the, script, the, the, the the passage is very clear that there would have been over 100 gallons of, or more, probably 100, between 100 and 150 of, of wine. And what's the comment of the master of the feast? The comment of the master of the feast is not about the quantity of the wine. It's about the quality of the wine. And if, it had been, if, if all of a sudden 120 gallons had been brought to him at the end of a wedding, he'd be saying, why have you been hiding all this to 120 gallons of wine for? That's not what he says. He makes a comment about the quality of the wine because it didn't come from the vats. It, it was new wine that was drawn from the well. Um, and so, uh, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, notice the phrase again: "drawn," uh, as from a well. The master of the feast came to the bridegroom and said, "Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor, then then the poor wine. But but you have kept the good wine until the end. New wine from a new well, the well of living water. Right." The one, the only one, who John says is the true life, right? The only place of life. This is the wine that the master of the feast now finds um, uh, exceptional. And in saying this, the, the, the waiter, the master waiter saying this, notice that the, the shame that would have been on the groom here. See, the groom had to provide all the wine, and for him to run out of wine would have been a shame, because this is shame culture, Right? It would have been a shame to all the group that are, all the, the guests that are here. It'd been, it'd been a sh- be, he'd be losing face. But Jesus has kept him from losing face. Jesus has removed the shame. You know, um, shame is now gone. Shame was one of the first effects from the fall. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? What? Well, they immediately saw their nakedness and they hid. Why? Because the enemy automatically is speaking shame into them. and Shame comes between them and one another, and it comes between them and God. All of us have shame. We all do. And we all need to deal with our shame in the light of the cross. We need to allow Jesus to address our shame. You know, I'm convinced that all men at some point have to come and deal with shame because we've all failed. We've got to deal with our failures. Where are we going to put that? How are we going to allow Christ... The identity of who I am in Christ to speak to, to re-disciple the shame that we feel. I can live from shame, or I can live from my new identity as a deeply beloved, redeemed son of the Most High God. Women, as well, you deal with shame. Many of you, shame about your past, or shame about what you feel like your weaknesses are, or areas you feel like you fall short. Shame separates us from God's created design and purpose. How does shame try to condemn you? How does it condemn you? How does the enemy use it? Where do you feel you've fallen short? Where is failure accusing you? Jesus takes our shame because of the cross. As Roman 8 1 says, In Christ there is therefore now no shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus removes the shame of the one who, upon which it would have fallen. And so he says, But, but you've kept The good wine until now, everyone serves the good wine first. But when people have drunk freely, then they bring the poor wine. And so it's obvious here that this isn't just grape juice. That they're talking about here, this is fermented wine for sure. And you know, before the wedding started out with adequate wine, and now is better wine. Now is the best wine. The new best wine flows. Jesus, God reserved his fuller revelation of himself, as John explains, through the word made flesh and his indwelling fruitful presence through his spirit now flows in the latter days. This is a newer, better revelation. It's not different. It doesn't contradict the old revelation. It explains it more fully. God lets his grace flow out of the new covenant to us through the new creation. Well, wine itself is a metaphor, a prophetic metaphor used to prophesy about the end times, to prophesy about the latter days, and specifically to prophesy about the new creation and the Holy Spirit's role in that. This comes from Joel chapter 2. This is a familiar passage because Peter quoted on on the day of Pentecost. He said, The Lord has answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, oil, you'll be satisfied, the threshing floor will be full of rain, the vats will overflow with wine and oil, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on male and female servants in these last days I will pour out my spirit. Pentecost marked new creation, it did that through the Holy Spirit, but that goes back to the prophecy of Joel, which specifically uses wine as the imagery for that, and that's what Jesus did here, in embodying this through His life, through this story, at, in the miracle that He did at the, uh, the 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 wedding in Canaan. Jesus' blood is a new wine poured out for us, the wine, the blood of the new covenant, right? Blood of a new covenant, the covenant of grace that John talks about in, the, in John chapter 1. Well, verse 11, and this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first of his signs. This is the first sign of the first fruits of the new covenant. John's going to... This is the book of signs. The first 12 chapters of the book of John is, is a, book, a book of signs. he has got seven major signs that are going to point to Christ as, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And the sign points to a new dispensation of grace and a fulfillment that Jesus is inaugurati- inaugurating. It's interesting because John doesn't use the word for miracles here or wonders. He could have used those words. Instead, he uses the word sign. A sign points to something. It's not about the sign itself. It's not, wow, look at that miraculous thing, man, that's amazing. That's not what a sign, the sign, what's more significant is what it points to. And uh, and so the sign here points to who Jesus is, right? And, And that's what he says, and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And he manifested his glory. This is what John said in, in John chapter in verse 14. He says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's about the glory of the Son now being manifest as the Son of Man, as the fulfillment of the, the, of the Messiah who will establish this everlasting and prevailing kingdom that was prophesied um, going back. To the Old Testament prophecies, and now is fulfilled here in the Gospels. And John ends once again with his comment about the response of the disciples. The disciples believed. Remember, we said the key verse in John is John chapter 20, verse 31. These things have been written to you who believe, that you may believe in this. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And it says, his disciples believed on his name. So John ties it back again here to the main theme to bring us back to that this is all about unpacking who Christ is and who he is for us. You know, for us, just like the people who had come together at that wedding, first century Canaan, uh, you know, they live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. We have disappointments, right? Uh, our life hasn't become maybe what we wanted it to be. Uh, we've had hurts. We've had uh griefs. And how can we have hope? How can they have hope? They waited for hope for, uh, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. God had said hope was coming. He, he'd said that, that uh, there was going to be a coming Savior. And now we know that He has come. And uh, even as they waited for Him, now we wait for the future fulfillment, the completion, it was inaugurated, it was begun, it was launched then at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but one day we will see and it will be fulfilled. And like the people of Hebrews chapter 11 who didn't see it realized in their lifetime, one day we will see it and it will be all before our eyes. And we'll be around the throne in Genesis and Revelation chapter 21, right? We'll be all around the Lamb of God. That's what we are moving towards and that's where our eyes should be. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son, the Son of Man, uh, sent by the Ancient of Days to to start and grow a kingdom, a kingdom that is indestructible, a kingdom that is everlasting, a kingdom that is prevailing. And, Lord, our lives are are evidence of that growing kingdom to this day. But, Lord, this isn't the end of the story, even as uh, what John experienced was the beginning, Lord. You are not finished yet, and Lord, uh, you will be vindicated in the end, Lord, when you will make all things new. And Lord, we wait for that day when we can stand around your throne at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we can praise the groom, we can praise Christ, Lord, and for all that he has meant for us. We praise him now, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today and listening to this message from Crossway Community Church. Once again, we meet at 1045 on Sunday mornings at 1501 Woodbury Road, which is just off Colonial and 408 in East Orlando. Come check us out. I'll see you then.